1: Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help.
0: Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages.
1: Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla
0: doesn't just fix acne, you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day.
1: As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole-Bennett. We are so thrilled to have with us today, Dr. Sarah Levine, who's the Medical Director of Adolescent Medicine at Caraway, digital healthcare company for Gen Z. Dr. Levine has a veritable buffet of certifications and degrees. She's board certified in both general pediatrics and adolescent medicine and has a master's degree in public health. She's been a private practice for 15 years, providing adolescent primary care specialty care to adolescents and young adults with a particular focus on eating disorders. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine and the Academy for Eating Disorders. If you can't appreciate it from all of that biographical information, when you hear Sarah speak and give guidance and advice, you will understand why she is such a valuable guest to have on the podcast.
0: She will tell you, but we will add... She is also a mom of two teenagers, and as she loves to say it, that is her biggest accolade and achievement. Enjoy the show. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, it's such
2: a pleasure to be with you guys today.
0: We are thrilled to have you for so many reasons, but let me start by saying one of the many reasons is that you are credentialed up the yin yang. And while we do this for a living, and I feel like I've got some creds, you really have all the creds. You're you're a general pediatrician. You did a subspecialty training in adolescent medicine, and you have a master's degree in public health. You wear three hats that we sort of pretend to wear and try to wear and, and you wear them. So we're so happy to have you here and have your voice in this conversation.
2: Thank you. I think
0: on top of that,
2: the most important training is that I have a 17-year-old and an almost 20-year-old of my own. So um, that is more helpful, I think, sometimes than all of the adolescent medicine training one can find.
1: And then it's still do as I say and not as I do. And 100%. all the advice you're probably going give everyone. <laughs> the cobbler's children. So There's a gazillion topics we could have chosen to cover with you. And hopefully you will come back and cover some of those other topics another day. But it's spring. Kids are graduating from high school. Kids are getting ready for college and kids are turning 18. It is birthday season in this country, right? (laughs) And I think a lot about What I did not know and did not realize when my own now 20-year-old turned 18 and was getting ready to go off to school, and so many 18-year-olds actually are still living under their parents' roofs, the way things work in terms of age and grade these years.
0: One of us may have someone who's turning
1: 18 in three weeks living under our roof for another another year. year. (laughs) (laughs) So what we would love your help in doing is... Unpacking and giving people guidance for what does it mean to have an 18 year old in your care, living at home or living elsewhere? What do we need to be thinking about? What do we need to be worried about? And what should we be excited about? What are the kinds of forms and permissions and legal documents we need? And what are some of the medical considerations that we might not really have at front of mind? So, Let's start with what? No, I have one. Can I ask one to start? (laughs) Sorry. Let's start with not my question, but Cara's question. Because I have a really big,
0: I have an important question. Ready? Are they legal at 18, Sarah? Uh, Legal for what? I mean, they're neither
2: competent nor responsible. (laughs) No, I say, I say all the time that nothing magical happens at the stroke of midnight on their 18th birthday. And yet, it is this profound shift in their identity and in our identity as parents and guardians and in the legal landscape. A lot changes. And yet, your kid is not that different than they were a day before, a week before, a month before, or even a year before. And I think that too often we think about the question, as triggered by that birthday, as opposed to thinking of it as a transition and a process that actually needs to start earlier. You know, I think of this sort of launching out of high school into the next step, whatever it is, from the home into the next place, wherever it is, in some ways, sort of as the next big transition after puberty. And Just as so many changes happen in those tween and early teen years, physically, emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally, we see all of that sort of happen again in that 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old that we need to anticipate a little bit sooner and address in a longer-term way because otherwise you can be gobsmacked by a sudden door that's closed in front of you as far as access to stuff to help your kid. And they can be completely stunned by the responsibility that's suddenly on their shoulders that they're in no way prepared for.
1: So let's talk really specifically about what changes legally. And then let's back into how we baby step into preparing ourselves and our kids for that quite drastic change, right? Like one day you have access to your kid's medical records and the next day in order to have access to their medical records, they need to give you permission to access right. them, right? One day you get to make a decision if God forbid your kid is in the hospital, the next day you no longer have that right. So talk us through what legally changes, even though developmentally there's really no difference between 17 and 364 days and 18 and a day. Um <laughs> But what does change? And then we're going to talk through, Sarah, what do we need to do to prepare everybody for that shift?
2: Sure. So caveat, I'm not an attorney and I wouldn't want anybody to take what I say as legal advice. But in the simplest terms, 18 is the age of majority for healthcare decision-making and for owning their healthcare record. Right. So parents cannot without an 18-year-old's permission, get access to their medical care. And that could be anything from prescriptions, appointments, lab results, hospital decisions, immunization records. I mean, everything from the mundane to the profound.
1: Everything we handled for 17 years and 364 days that was on our shoulders that we dealt with, that we had control of, all of a sudden, it changes.
0: And also everything that we almost took for granted, we were going to have access to. Yes. So your kid gets a blood test and... You're interested in the results, and you know what? The results come to you, not anymore. Or there's a conversation. We can get into the granularity around conversations with physicians, which take on confidentiality actually before 18. And that's sort of what you describe as that transition in. But ultimately, conversations are completely off limits to us unless, unless. You have a kid who has opted you into those conversations Mm -hmm. and there are lots of ways that they can opt you in. And so we should talk about that.
2: But I like to reframe the question a little bit because we take for granted as the parent, what we have access to, but our kids take for granted what they don't need to be
1: responsible for. Correct. Absolutely.
2: And likewise, There can be a tremendous amount of anxiety around not having access to your kids' medical information. But I like to always ask parents, why do you need access? What are you accessing this for? Are you accessing this because your kid's incompetent or irresponsible, in which case there's some work to be done there? Are you accessing this because These are complicated medical conditions and they need some support. And that goes down a whole different avenue as far as really helping kids who are living with chronic illness learn to manage those issues. Because I think that in some communities, in some demographics, in some cultures, we just like being involved in our kids' lives. And so we do it. And they like knowing that somebody else is going to take care of all that for them. And yet there needs to be a stepwise handoff in the same way that we teach our kids to swim. We teach them to drive. We teach them to do so many things. We don't talk about periods after they get their first one, hopefully. We shouldn't talk about healthcare after they have to do it on their own for the first time. We should be teaching them some of those skills
1: earlier. Right, so let's talk about how we wade into those waters, not on their 18th birthday, but ahead of time. And what are the things I do actually want to talk about what happens if you have a kid who's dealing with a chronic illness or ongoing mental illness that's being medicated or treated, or they're being medicated for, you know, ADHD. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would love to know what that looks like in partnership with your kid. But for a kid who's just like, pediatrician, physical, school clearance, trip clearance, you know, all of that stuff. Sarah, when do you recommend starting to kind of train them in beginning, right? There's like the medical forms, there's the office visit, there's the copay, there's the follow-up there, all of that stuff. When do you recommend starting to like get that training going?
2: As soon as you can you know, this is what's near and dear to me as an adolescent medicine specialist. When kids transition into my practice, I've been in private practice for about 15 years, and now I do mostly specialty care in that setting, but I was doing some primary care in that setting. The first time they come into the office, it's sometimes the first time they've ever heard their family medical history mm-hmm. because the last time it was done was when they enrolled in a pediatric office, maybe at birth. Mm. So involving them in knowing their family medical history helping them learn what their allergies are, what their medications are, what their own personal medical history is. You know, they don't always know if they had pneumonia when they were three. So, you know, you have to know your kid and developmentally, it has to be somewhat appropriate, but typically when they're in high school and they're starting to take some responsibility for other things, they should at least have a sense that there are steps that are taken for this. And it's one of the things I love most about what I'm doing now, which is we have a whole team of health advisors that help walk young people through this who don't necessarily know what it means to figure out that something is in network or on formulary. And so we're able to provide that wraparound care. In my field of adolescent medicine, we try to transition this process in a stepwise fashion, which is at a certain point, letting kids know we're going to call them with their lab results. Yeah. And that
1: I know, they, should set up, they, they should All set right. up their voicemail and then listen to okay. their voicemail. And listen. Yeah.
0: They should,
2: they yeah. should listen.
0: Yeah.
2: As opposed to just seeing a missed call and calling back. Hi, I saw a missed call. <laughs> Did you listen to the message I left? No, No. Well, what I, and I, in my office, what I say is, why don't you listen to the message and call me back if you have any
0: questions? Oh, um, good for you. <laughs> wow, that is not a rookie move. No, you know,
2: but they have to learn.
0: Do you or someone you love have smelly feet? Well, this is for you. We made magical socks. We did. The magic is zinc. With zinc around, bacteria cannot grow. And if bacteria cannot grow, well then there are no bacteria to eat the sweat. And if there's no bacteria to eat the sweat, then there's no off-gassing. And if there's no off-gassing, then there's no smell. That's how oomsocks work. Check out the link in our show notes or go to myoomla.com. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
1: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to bioptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code puberty10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is puberty10 at biooptimizers.com/slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa,
0: we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer
1: That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house.
0: Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between 4 and 5 grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa.
1: You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them.
0: Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. I think, you know, we should talk a little bit about the transition from general pediatric care into adolescent care. Whether you see an adolescent medicine doctor or whether you stay with your regular general pediatrician. And grow up with them. And lots of people do it lots of different ways. But what does happen is that through the tween and teen years, gradually the parent or guardian, the adult presence becomes less of a fixture in that visit. And there becomes a greater and greater carve out for time spent just between the kid and the physician. Will you talk a little bit about why that's important training, but also explain? what the confidentiality rules are around that. So when a 15 or 16-year-old is in an exam room with you and they tell you something confidentially, will you explain what that means, even if the parent is sitting out in the waiting room?
2: Yeah, and there are some nuances to this that are state by state and topic by topic. But for the most part, physicians are gonna keep conversations that they have privately with teenagers, confidential, with the exception of any time somebody expresses any danger to themselves or another person. That's a blanket rule. I think that, again, there are increasing numbers of state laws regarding very specific topics around gender, sexuality, and reproductive health that are complicating things. But it is Critically important that teenagers feel like they have another trusted adult that they can ask honest questions of and get honest answers that are medically accurate and that are not value based, that are about being safe and healthy, not about right and wrong, and that don't carry the weight of somebody who cares in a personal way whether or not you play soccer or what college you get into or. Any other choice you might make that are really going to focus on safe and healthy and non judgmental, medically accurate information.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I explained this to my kids when they were first having those kind of pull asides. Can you tell I've been watching The Diplomat? They talk about pull <laughs> all the time. Like you can tell the doctor anything. This is private, this is confidential. And then it became clear to me that my kids were still actually editing what they said to the doctor, not from the doctor, but because they would share with me what they said and what they chose not to say. And I was like, no, guys, it is confidential. You can tell them anything and they will not tell me unless they are really concerned about your safety or someone else's safety. And they're like, wait, really? Because rightfully so, we have spent all these years telling our kids that they don't keep secrets from us, that if someone else tells them that something they've told them is private or secret, that's not okay. And they should, like, it's very hard to hold both those things in their minds. And I've had to have the conversation several times with my kids, because as we all know, teenagers are already editing so much of what they tell us Even if we think they're like really expressive and open with us, there's a ton of stuff they're not telling us, but hopefully they're telling someone. But there's, I hallelujah and,
0: I'm not gonna say but, hallelujah and, there's a giant gray zone for them. So what Sarah describes is this sentence that we are taught in our pediatric training that we say in every Mm -hmm. single visit alone in a room with a kid, which is everything you say to me is kept confidential, except in the case where you could hurt yourself or someone else, Okay. I want you to pull out the phrase, hurt yourself. So the concrete kid is not thinking, what we are really asking about is suicidal ideation. Right. Because we cannot keep that confidential because it is not safe for the kid. But when they hear hurt yourself, they will often think, well, getting high, I know my parents think that's hurting myself or dating this person that I'm dating is hurting myself. So there's a gigantic- Or jello shots. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, you know, or 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 sending nudes or, or, or. so defining our terms becomes important because mm-hmm. they are, I think, reasonably skeptical. The other side of the coin is as important, which is there are kids who are victims of abuse and assault and trauma, and they are terrified to share with anyone and the promises of confidentiality, the secret keeping, that is the trope that many of them, not all of them, but many of them have been served as part of the abuse, as part of the dysfunctional relationship, whether it's a abusive relationship with a peer or there is an age gap and it doesn't really matter. The trope is, this is between us, this is a secret. So here comes this really well-meaning person saying, anything you say to me is just between you and me. And they're hearing this refrain and some number of them shut down at that refrain because they've heard that before. They've heard that from the person who hurts them. And so sometimes we have to go in and it's really kid-specific in really careful and subtle ways There are kids who come to us pregnant and they are afraid for their lives because they are disclosing a pregnancy and that might not be okay in their home or in their state. And by the way, that takes them to emancipated minor status, which we should talk about for one second, Sarah, so that people understand the legal difference between an emancipated minor and just a minor, someone under 18 with whom we have confidential conversations.
2: Right. And this, again, I believe is state law specific. So the general idea is there are certain statuses that make a minor emancipated, which means they are entitled to make certain decisions and have certain rights as an adult, even if they are under 18. Pregnancy confers that status on teenagers in some, if not all states. Interestingly, They can make certain decisions while pregnant, but not necessarily all decisions while pregnant. And then there are additional statuses around independent living. You can apply to be sort of deemed an emancipated minor. There are a lot of legal specifications around this that I don't have at my fingertips, but it's a status that has to be considered. And the latest one is that of the mature minor, which is more of a um, I think it's a little bit more vague and it's a little bit more subjective, but some doctors can choose to keep some things confidential under the auspices that this is a mature minor who's entitled to make this decision. That is again a very gray zone that people would have to
0: Figure out. Most of the examples that come up for that for me have to do with vaccination. So, kids whose parents may not believe in immunizing and the kids wish to be immunized. And I think that's a good example of when a mature minor status is sometimes invoked in some states by some physicians.
1: Sarah, let's take this. We're speaking very broadly now, right? Yeah. We've kind of covered all of the things to be thinking about and aware of. Let's pick a specific example to kind of dive into. So you can talk us through what it looks like as kids get older and have more autonomy. You have a specialty in treating eating disorders, right? We Mm -hmm. know eating disorders are on the rise. We know that often decisions about how or if at all to treat an eating disorder is under when a kid is a minor is the parent's decision You have a child who is being treated for an eating disorder. They turn 18. They are at severe health risk. What happens?
2: Oh, there are so many outcomes that can happen there. It is incredibly complicated for those young people. Eating disorders carry one of the highest mortality rates of any mental health diagnosis. These can be fatal. And whether or not someone of adult age or should be making certain treatment decisions can be life-threatening. So a number of things happen, often with very delicate and nuanced individualized conversations based on about as many factors as you can imagine. So the truth is that some 18, 19, 20-year-olds will just opt out of treatment, and that's their legal right. And that's devastating sometimes. You know, eating disorders are also one of the few illnesses that people really want to hang on to. Mm -hmm. Right? Nobody's like super psyched to like keep their asthma around, but people really have a hard time letting go of their eating disorders. All of their behaviors and thoughts are about sort of supporting that. That's part of the illness. So the leverage that families sometimes have to use to keep a young person in treatment are the painful decisions around things like housing and education and saying, you are not in a state to get out of college what you should be getting out of college, academically, socially, personally, the joy, the fun, the challenge. And so we're not gonna pay for college until this has been treated. Mm -hmm. So some families make that decision. Some families have to say, if you're going to continue to claim your independence and that you get to make all these decisions, you're not welcome under this roof anymore. I can't imagine how difficult that is for a family. But with certain young adult illnesses, eating disorders, addiction, Mm -hmm. other psychiatric illness, Sometimes the most important thing we do as parents is just not enable Mm -hmm. those decisions to be made, the lack of treatment to be pursued. It's devastating.
1: What role do you, can you play in that, right? Because that's often a conversation that happens amongst many different people, not just parent to child or guardian to child, but healthcare providers and therapists and all of that. When you think about the most valuable role you can play in helping a family come to a point where they're really keeping kids as safe as they possibly can, even without the kind of legal oversight that they used to have, what can you do in that position, Sarah?
2: It's hard. I bring up all the options, right? So I've taken care of some patients where parents have applied for and been granted guardianship over Mm -hmm. A young adult, where that is a court-imposed guardianship. Or, I mean, that's—I think—that's what it's called legally. And they, the parents, therefore, can make the decision, and that young person is then no longer considered to have the right to opt out of those healthcare decisions, to opt out of that treatment. And I want to be clear that this is not my most common case. These are the outliers. You no. Know, Ideally, we've gotten buy-in from a patient. And this goes back to what I was saying before. It's so much about actually empowering young people and teaching them about their responsibilities sooner so that you're not faced with these decisions down the road. But when you are, you bring up what all the options are. Yeah, You know, helping to support parents to not enable self-destructive decision-making. I mean, as pediatricians, we do that at every stage.
0: Right. And that's such an important flip side to be looking at. So, you know, how do we get to a place when the kids in our lives turn 18 and they have these freedoms? How have we paved the road for that buy-in, for that transition? You know, what does it look like to hand your child a medical power of attorney form and ask them to sign it or to ask them to sign you know, documentation that says, yes, I will share my medical information with this adult. By the way, those forms, just my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, those forms are not standing carte blanche. You can see everything that happens medically to your child from then on. It's if a child is incapacitated and they lack their own decision-making and they cannot opt in in a meaningful way to share the information with you, then they have signed a legal document saying, yes, you may take over their medical power of attorney. You may be the person to talk to the doctor, to see the lab information, whatnot. But it's not that if your child opts into one of these statuses that at 18, 19, 20, 21, all the labs are still coming to you. They're not.
1: Right. Right. No, you have, I mean, we had a power of attorney when my kid went to college that you would hope would be with him at college, but is actually sitting in his bedroom at home. So that's (laughs) super useful for everyone involved after like eight trips to like the notary public, you know, in Louisiana, that was really super helpful. But then also at his pediatrician's office, there were forms that he filled out allowing us access. But even then, when I ask, particular questions, I don't ask, what were the results of the STI and STD panel that was done when he came home from college? But I did ask, is there anything I should be (laughs) aware of? You know, and so even then, it's like I'm dancing around Mm -hmm. the question in a way that respects his privacy. But yeah, there's forms at the office, there's legal forms, there's a site called Mama Bear legal forms where they kind of tell you what you need for different stages.
0: And it's linked through Grown and Flown, which is a really great resource. So for people who are looking for all of these documents, you know, you can find them quite easily on Grown and Flown. And
1: even now I'm like, okay, well, he's going abroad. And now I have to figure out, you know, what forms have to go there. So we'll link to some helpful stuff. But Sarah, I want to go back to the sort of like There's the most dire situation, right? Where a kid's either mental or physical health or both is in really concerning states and people are at an impasse, right? And that's, I can only imagine how awful that can feel. And then you've got the kid who like doesn't know their social security number and like doesn't know how old they were when Mm -hmm. they had the like hernia repair and like, you know, doesn't know what surname means, right? And so then you just have the like silly, ordinary incompetence that can be trained. You say when kids get to your practice, you want to start as early as possible. How old are kids when they start seeing an adolescent medicine specialist?
2: So that depends on the adolescent medicine practice. And there are probably only about 700 or so of us in the country. So most teenagers are not seeing an adolescent medicine specialist. This is mostly happening in the pediatric office or family medicine office. And in some ways that's brilliant because that doctor or healthcare provider who already has a relationship with both the parent or guardian and this patient can start to navigate that Together in a way where a parent maybe can be reassured that, oh, look, you know, Dr. Levine looked at me and said, I'll tell you if there's anything you need to worry about. Mm -hmm. And they trust that I'm going to let them know if there's anything that they need to worry about. But if I don't tell them that they need to worry, then we're probably fine. And so that stepwise comfort. And process can start at 11 or 12 or 13. When you have an 11-year-old who comes into the office and you want to do that pull-aside and have that private conversation, that can feel really embarrassing or overwhelming or frightening to a kid. And if I see a kid who maybe is intimidated by that, I don't even necessarily do it the first time. I'll introduce the idea. Next year, when you're here for your checkup, Mm. we're going to take some time together to talk about sort of what's going on in your life so that if you have any questions you want to ask me without your parent or guardian in the room, we can do that. Some of those questions might be about school or about how your friendships are or about if you have any questions about your body. You can ask me any of those questions, but I'll be checking in with you about that kind of stuff every year alone. And you just set the stage. Sometimes I will use the opportunity when I bring the kid into the examining room for a private physical exam without the parent or guardian in the room to say, this is another opportunity where you can ask me questions that you may not want to ask in front of your mom, dad, or babysitter. If they want their mom, dad, or babysitter to be in the room during that physical exam, I say, If this year you want that because this feels really weird, that's totally fine. And in fact, nobody should be doing a physical exam on you without your permission. So you're in charge here. Mm -hmm. So again, to make sure that you're not intimidating or doing anything that could re-traumatize somebody who's got a background that you may or may not know about. But let's imagine the 16, 17-year-old, right? Like they're getting ready to launch. Theoretically, they should now be on top of their own homework, maybe keeping track of their baseball cleats, actually knowing when they have practice, whatever those things are. They're
0: driving for God's sakes. I mean- Exactly.
2: Right. I mean, maybe not filling the car with gas, but they're, they <laughs> should be doing- Or emptying the at least garbage out of
1: their car. Oh. I right. Mean.
2: All of these things. And so just introducing the idea of saying, you need a checkup before you go off to camp this summer. Let's call the doctor's office together on Mm -hmm. speakerphone so you see how this works.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Because most of them have never made an appointment. And when they say I'd like to come Tuesday at two o'clock, and they're (laughs) laughed at because, like, (laughs) that's not the way it works. works For
0: me.
1: (laughs) You mean the whole world doesn't revolve around (laughs) my schedule? There's not an
2: app for that. Wait, what? And so, so then they learn, oh, oh, I have to plan in advance. Here's the way this is gonna work. But the first time you get stuck in one of those phone trees mm-hmm. or find out that, like, the only appointment that works for your schedule is six weeks away, you know, a lot of kids would give up and yeah. just be like, never mind. Mm-hmm. And so, to actually teach them, this is how you access healthcare. When they have to fill a prescription, bring them to the pharmacy, teach them what it looks like to request that refill teach them about their portals, whether it's the, you know, doctor's practice or the pharmacy portal or their insurance portal, they won't have their own account necessarily until they're 18, but they can learn how to check that, how to see what's this medication going to cost? Is this covered? Is this not covered? That comes up all the time with dermatological medications but actually helping them do that so that when they're down at school or wherever they are at their next stage, it's not their first time. Yeah, They've at least been exposed to it. On the same lines, explore that student health center website before they head off to college. Actually go online together and say, okay, let's figure out where is student health on your campus? Are they open? seven days a week, five days a week, two days a week? Do you have to make an appointment? Are there walk-in times available? Do you have to request by phone or online? What would be a reason to go to urgent care? Where is an urgent care? Is there a 24-hour pharmacy nearby? All of those sort of preparatory things that often get lost while we're finding like twin extra long sheets. Totally. Like the right room decor.
0: Yeah, You know, Sarah, I'd love to take a moment because you're steeped in the world of once kids leave home, they're over 18 and they are very much on their own. This is sort of how you spend much of your day now. I would love for you to give some advice to the listeners about how do other than those really great pointers that every parent tries and then it falls on deaf ears a little bit or, you know, oh, student health, I don't want to go. How do they find good resources in their landscape, which is generally on a phone? How do they suss out a reliable one versus not a reliable one? And how can the parent or guardian generation not necessarily be involved in that care, but even understand that landscape and what kids have available to them now?
2: Sure. So, as you guys know, I'm the medical director of adolescent medicine for Caraway. It is a digital health company. So, I'm very much in this landscape now. If we can find any real positive outcome from the pandemic, which, congratulations, is officially over according to our government, Um, (laughs) it ended suddenly yesterday. We can all (laughs) throw a party. Uh, The emergence of telehealth as an option for young people is a phenomenal change in access. And that may be that your young adult can now access their doctor from home, potentially. There are prostate licensing things and all sorts of stuff that's at play there. But healthcare is all of a sudden much more accessible on the go than it used to be. I think that there were a lot of lessons learned, right? Like all these people who thought that work could only be done sitting in the office and lo and behold, we can actually multitask and we can work from home and it makes incredible sense. I think for a lot of working women, for example, that you know FaceTime doesn't always matter the same way. So there are a lot of options for seeking care virtually. As a healthcare consumer, And parent, I'm going to vet any options that my kids come across. So at my son's university, they have contracted with a company to provide after-hour mental health care virtually. I'd like to know, are those certified professionals who are providing the care? Do you get the same person every time if you are seeking care? Do you get matched with somebody? How does it work? There's sometimes a little bit of a curtain that is hard to pull aside on some of this. But I think for a lot of people, these virtual options aren't trying to replace the medical home. They're not trying to replace that trusted, ongoing relationship that you may have in person with someone at home, wherever that is, but more a really accessible, in-the-moment, episodic, I've got a need or a question that doesn't feel big enough that I'm going to go through the hoops to get to student health, but it's super distracting in the moment. And I'd love to get it addressed so that I can move on with my day or my night or my life. And so that's where I think that there's a lot of potential for parents to find that.
1: I think that when you're not nearby, that's the gap that a parent would fill or, you know, just logistically... Administratively, I also think getting back to your earlier point about before a kid gets on campus or to, you know, wherever their new home is, but certainly at institutions of higher education, they have really upped their game in terms of what they are offering in terms of mental health services, support services, all of that. And it's really important. I mean, I know when we looked at colleges for my oldest, I specifically asked what was available to students. I mean, we were in a pandemic and we already knew what the results of the pandemic were going to be in terms of teen mental health. Ask those questions. If it's going to mortify your kid, don't ask those questions in front of your kid, but know what is available and part of tuition. Like included in that big bill are some really incredible services and So I think that level of research that your kid, frankly, is not going to do. I mean, it is the rare child who is going to dig into that. There is some legwork that adults need to do.
2: And it's even more important if your kid has chronic health care needs or special health care needs, because even if a particular school is their dream school. If it is 300 miles away from the closest hospital, maybe that school is not the best option. Yeah. Maybe you need to be in a place where there are some specialists a little bit closer by. And so that's a conversation I think that needs to start pretty early in it's that great whole point. college process. Yeah, To think about like, you know, for somebody with type one diabetes or With somebody who's got really severe asthma or any number of issues, knowing sort of where they can get care nearby if they need it can be really
0: important.
1: We have a wonderful episode with a young man who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in grade school and then epilepsy in college. And he talks about his own journey of learning to manage that and his sense of independence and self-sufficiency. And it's a nice relationship to this episode because it's, you know, his perspective and and thinking about that.
0: And I think it's important to just put a fine point on what student health services are and aren't designed to do. Mm -hmm. They are not designed to be subspecialty clinics that take over very complicated care. They are, you know, designed largely for the big lowest common denominator issues, you know, strep throat and STIs. They are less well-equipped to manage complicated health questions. Often though, there are medical centers, including medical schools that are nearby. These are hospital-based campuses and these can be phenomenal resources. And as you said, Sarah, the transition to telehealth in the pandemic has dramatically changed the landscape because there's no going back. There's no way that we can argue. I mean, doctors never did. Doctors didn't want to be available 24 hour seven because it's a hard life. However, <laughs> cue the laughter. But the reality is that access to patients that you know, Is simply healthier and easier for everyone involved. And it shouldn't matter if I'm in California and my patient is across the state line. They have the same health issues. We have the same underlying relationship, and physiology is physiology and medicine is medicine. It does matter because laws are laws and because it's not just the rules of enforcement, but the rules around what access people can get for certain medical issues is different state to state, which is messy. But this is all to say that as you start to think about launching a child in your home, one of the questions I think parents can and should ask is of their primary care provider, whether it's an adolescent medicine doctor, a family health provider, a pediatrician, hey, can we stay in touch with you? How does Mm -hmm. this work? Mm -hmm. What does a handoff look like? I mean, my first week of work, I was asked out by a patient, which was hysterical (laughs) and so wrong. And I knew what the right answer was. The right answer was, you are too old for this practice. And now it is time for you to leave. But, um, you know, it's been a joke in my family ever (laughs) since. But it's like a good reminder that just because they turn 18, they don't necessarily leave the pediatrician. They certainly don't leave the family health provider. There's a long tail for all of this.
1: And make sure they hear you ask all the questions that you're going to ask. I feel like one of our biggest jobs as parents is teaching our kids what questions to ask, not necessarily what the answers are, but like, how the hell do you navigate getting the information that you need? Right. That's right. And respectfully and patiently and appropriately, because our children are not used to answering the phone politely or making an appointment politely because they do it all online. And so what language do you use? How do you address people? You know, how do you thank people for helping you? All of those skills, which are somehow, I mean, if my mother heard how my children answered the phone, she would like probably never speak to them again. I think it's generally like, what? (laughs) what (laughs) Yeah, So
0: let's land with two Very specific summary questions, one about the kids and one about the parents, but it's really, spoiler alert, can be the same question. (laughs) If you could give one piece of advice to the adult caregivers of newly minted 18-year-olds or soon to be newly minted 18-year-olds, what would that one piece of advice be?
2: it'd be a multi step piece of advice?
0: Oh, you speak <laughs> yes. my language. I was going to say, say that's again. totally so Cara Put it say. in a Google sheet and i like, <laughs>
2: that worked good. <laughs> so, I mean, on a, the most concrete level, I say set up your medical ID on your phone. Mm. Because it gives you the opportunity to list an emergency contact and you can list a parent. You should list a parent, ideally. Or another
1: trusted adult. I'm texting my son right now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry, you keep can. going. But then when he comes home from school, just sit there next to him because he won't have listened to you when 100%. you text him. <sighs> not to oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I
1: forgot to do that. Right. right. Okay. So set up medical ID. Or, or maybe he'll respond, okay, bro. Yeah. yeah. Bruh. B-R-U-H. B-R-U-H. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, okay. Set up medical ID and have an adult and or a guardian caregiver as that emergency contact. Great.
2: Talk to your primary care provider now to see how they can help. I remind parents all the time that as the physician, I can get information that won't be shared with a parent if they call. Hmm. So if a kid lands in an emergency room and they're over 18, I say, call me. I can call the ER. I can find out what's going on. Oh, advice. interesting!
1: That's great advice. Yeah. That's the next text <laughs> that's <Yeah>.
2: going on. <laughs> but that—that that is for people who have a relationship with a primary care provider. Right. So, not everybody does. But if you do, that person can be your ally and your advocate in those situations. And the third piece would be teach your kid about the portals, get them the apps, make them sign up help them figure it out and see if they can make one appointment, fill one prescription and track one result before Mm -hmm. they've left the house. Mm -hmm. If you have the opportunity to do that. Oh, the heavy lifting. The flip side for the kid is do all those things. I love it. (laughs) It would be great for every kid to know how to reach their primary care doctor or their specialist, whoever their point person is, maybe it's their therapist, maybe it's their psychiatrist, maybe it's their pediatrician, maybe it's their endocrinologist, whoever their most commonly needed healthcare provider is, make sure that phone number is saved, make sure they know their medications. And so they know how to access that person if they need to. I think that's our biggest barrier, you know, for The majority of people in this age group, in this 18 to 28 year old age group, they're healthy. There's not a lot of like recommended screening tests. There's not a lot of stuff that we have to do. It tends to be behavior and lifestyle Mm -hmm. that causes them some grief, you know, whether it's lack of sleep or unhealthy eating, too much, too little, the wrong things, whatever it is. Those are the things that tend to get them in trouble, which is why sort of paying attention to all of this in a more integrated way is so great, but help them find a way that they can access care in the moment when they need it. And if that's a call to their pediatrician at home, great. If that's using a company like Caraway or another company out there, great. But making sure that they feel empowered to actually be able to seek care And then once they're in the door, ask the questions that they need to ask, even if somebody doesn't prompt them. Those are the important healthcare skills.
1: That's so great, Sarah. Thank you. I have a long list of notes (laughs) to address with my son when he lands tonight home from college. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to leave it on his pillow. Right Here's your to-do list. And he'll be like, yeah, yeah. He'll get to it like the day before he leaves. Sarah, this is Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. You are... Thank you for having me. I wish we could just like replicate you and have you in every community and every home around this country. It is such important work that you're doing. And we're so grateful to hear your your perspective and your very sage, calm, and reassuring advice. It's wonderful.
2: So much easier with other people's kids.
1: Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: Oh, Sarah. Thank you both. Really a pleasure to be here with you.
1: We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom Shorts or the Oom Socks or the Oom Bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com.